All right, well, good morning again, and happy Mother's Day again. I'm so thankful for the crazy amount of amazing mothers that we have in this congregation, uh, but uh, I'm especially partial to the one in black floral dress down here. I think she's the best. You can argue with me later, but uh, I have the microphone so I can talk louder. But seriously, for all the ridiculous number of days that card companies have invented to try to make money, uh, they got this one right. It is good and right to honor uh, our moms. And so let's do that. If, if your mom's still around and you can, uh, try to go visit, try to go um, make a phone call uh, if you can um, and give thanks to the Lord. But being a mom is a hard, hard job. Um, it takes hard work, which kind of segues into what we're going to talk about this morning, uh, because we're going to be talking about work. We're going to be talking about your job. We're going to be talking about your eight to five, or maybe you work second shift or third shift or some other time. Uh, we're talking about just your work. And I think it's important um, to talk about this, not just because it's here, but I, as I look around and just kind of observe Christian uh, culture or subculture, one of the things I kind of notice is that a lot of times we try to separate out our work lives from what we think is the rest of our Christian lives as if they live in different realms. As if like, you know, we have our Christian life and a life of worship over here, but then over here there's this completely different realm that our working lives uh, revolve in and, and they don't relate. And even as we go into this area, sometimes we feel like we need to turn off our Christianity or at least turn it back a little bit because just business it plays by different rules. And so we need to kind of turn that off. It's a different set of rules that we're working underneath. But for Christ followers, all of the applications of the life that Christ calls us to live apply all the time. Especially, perhaps, in our vocation. Because it's in our working world, we work 40, 50, 60 hours a week, where you are around people, the, the most amount of time that you are around people, spent around those people you work with. And so that is the place you have the greatest opportunity to influence someone towards Christ. But beyond that, which is a purpose of your work, you work where you work on purpose. You're a missionary there put by God to reach those around you. But beyond just that, just your job, your, your work in and of itself, is an avenue for worship. Work is God's idea. It is God's creation. It is not a result of the fall. You look at Genesis 1, Genesis 2, before sin ever entered the world, God tells Adam and Eve to work and cultivate the land. He gives them what theologians call the cultural mandate to have dominion and to subdue the earth and create culture and society for the glory of God and human flourishing. Before sin ever enters the world, work is given to mankind to do. And so it is a good thing. Work is a right thing. It is an avenue for worship. 
not separated off. It's part of life. And life, all of life, we were created to worship. And work is part of that. But when sin came into the world, that's where work got a little bit messed up. Because it marred God's creation. Sin marred God's good creation. Did not destroy it, but marred it. The world has been fractured. Things don't work the way they are supposed to. And so in our work, there are thorns and there are thistles and there are difficulties now. That's what's broken. it. That's what's changed it up and made it far more difficult. And so now, not only is that broken, but also how we view work. Is broken and how we approach work is broken. And so this morning I want to talk about that. And I want to talk about a, a big picture vision of work and how, even though it's been marred by sin, it is still for worship today. And how, when we get that, when we get that work is worship, it will change the way we work. It will change the way we view work. And so we've talked a little bit about the goodness of work. I want to show you now in the midst of sin, man's you know, kind of predispositions towards work, how we kind of view it wrongly. And so I'm going to talk about that a little bit. And then we'll get into the scriptures and talk about God's approach to work. And we're going to do all of that primarily by kind of bouncing out of 1 Timothy to a passage of scripture that's very, very closely related to 1 Timothy. And that's the book of Ephesians. Somebody says, why? how is that closely related? Well, where's Timothy pastoring? In Ephesus. And so the book of Ephesians, like they have it. Paul had written it to them years before, and so they have this book of Ephesians. So they've read it. I mean, they've gone through it. They've read it and read it. They've studied it. People very likely had memorized it. This was a very common practice of the early church to memorize whole books of the Bible. So people got this memorized. People, they know it forwards, they know it backwards. And so when this new letter comes in from Paul to Timothy and the church at Ephesus, and young Timothy stands in the church and reads it to the congregation and gets to this section in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, their brains instantly are going to reference back to the book of Ephesians where Paul's detailed this out a little bit more. And so that's where we're going to kind of camp out there in Ephesians 6. But first I want to kind of lay the groundwork of how God created work good. But then now because of sin man's approach to that has been marred. And so what happened in that marring, what happened in like how this has shifted is that when, when God created it good and then sin came into the world, I like the way David Platt summarizes this. He says, now, because of that, work that was designed to be fulfilling is frustrating. This is what sin brought into the world. It wasn't supposed to be that way, but that's how it is now. Work that was designed to be purposeful now sometimes feels pointless. And work that was designed to be selfless has become selfish. And as a result of this, we find ourselves... On one hand, overvaluing work to the neglect of our health and our families and our churches. And then on the other hand, 
we find ourselves undervaluing work in a culture that fosters the unbiblical ideal of laziness and glorifies the unbiblical idea of life as nothing but leisure. And friends, this is, this is, this is largely how man today approaches work. Overvalue, and so it becomes an idol. Or undervalue, and it becomes something to be avoided. I come from a place called Pine Log in Georgia. And this idea of work being avoided, down there we call that being sorry. I don't know if you've ever heard that. That's what we say in, all right, but sorriness. But for our purposes here, because I don't know if that really translates well, we're going to use indifferent laziness. So you've got idolatry. And you've got indifferent laziness. And so these are largely man's approach to work today. It's often either idolatry or it's indifferent laziness. And in a nonsensical way, because these are on two opposite ends of the spectrum, both somehow, though they're complete opposites, are celebrated in our culture. So we'll celebrate the person who is a workaholic. We will celebrate them in our culture. But then we'll also praise the one who's learned to stick it to the man and work the system. We'll praise both of these things. Now, I want to make sure I'm clear here. It is not idolatrous to work hard, to work long hours. It is not idolatrous. It's not idolatrous to find pleasure and enjoy your work. I mean, God created it as good. Yes, it's been marred, but it hasn't been destroyed. So there's aspects and avenues of pleasure, of enjoyment that can be and should be found in our work. That's not idolatrous in and of itself. But it becomes an idol when those desires begin to shift to where your work is the source of your ultimate satisfaction and meaning in life. Where you begin to define yourself and your worth based upon what you do versus whose you are. Now, largely in a lot of ways we do this, I mean, all the time. We often define ourselves by the work that we do. And so if I ask you who you, know, who you are, you, you're going to begin, well, I'm a CEO, I'm a teacher, I'm a builder, I'm a truck driver, I'm a construction worker, I'm a stay-at-home mom. So we just said, I am that thing. And so since we define ourselves by what we do, What happens when that's taken away from us? We have no sense of who we are. And so as one guy put it, any threat then that pops up to us, not being able to do what we do at a high level for a long period of time, when that ha- it just sends us into despair and depression and just creates a ton of anxiety because we don't know who we are. We simply know what we do, and we try to define who we are by what we do. And so when that changes, and we don't do that anymore, or we can't do that anymore, it's taken from us, we're lost. And this was me in college. I was so about track and field, and the success, and the, you know, praise of man that came from that, when in God, in His grace, I didn't recognize it as that then. I thought it was like His hand of smite on me. But in His grace, He took that from me for a period of time. It wrecked me. 
Because my idol was gone. Everything I lived for was gone. I had completely wrapped my life around that. And so when it was gone, I was lost. And what about you? If suddenly you lost what you do. Homeschool mom, working mom, policeman, businessman, business owner, construction worker. I mean, on and on and on and on we could go with these things. If suddenly you lost that and you couldn't do that anymore, you got hurt, you lost your job, whatever, you just couldn't do that anymore, would you be grieved because you had enjoyed worshiping God in that way? Or would you be grieved and crushed in a lot of senses? Because that's... You've so identified yourself there. You've viewed yourself like you are going to be viewed differently by others. That's who I was. And now that's gone. Who am I? What am I doing? And so let me just pastor you for just a minute. If your work has become your primary means of satisfaction, and you've got to be brutally honest here, It is so easy for us to justify things and create avenues in our minds where things are okay when they're not. But being completely honest and letting, you know, the Lord examine you. If your work has become your primary means of satisfaction, the success, the notoriety, the money, the praise of man, those things, then it's become an idol in your life. If it's your primary means of satisfaction. And idolatry is dishonoring to God because only He is deserving of being your ultimate satisfaction. And nothing else, not even your mom, not even your kids, only Him. But it's also, idolatry is also damaging to us because only God can truly satisfy our hearts. I, I mean, John Calvin talks about how our hearts are idol factories. That's what we do. We create idols all the time. We just have one and maybe we recognize it. We fight against it. We deconstruct it. We destroy it. And then another one pops up. And then another one. We constantly got to be warring against idols that are popping up in our lives. But here's what you will find in those idols. They will always fail you. They will always let you down. They will always crumble under the weight you put upon them. Oh, if I can just get this, and your heart's set on that, or, or I'm so joyed because of this, and it will fail you. It will crumble. It will buckle. It can't hold the weight of your hope and your joy and your purpose and your satisfaction. It can't hold that. It will fail, but Christ will not. Jesus is better. Set your affections there, your hope there. But still, that's one of humanity's predominant approaches to work, idolatry. All right. The other, then, is that sorriness, right? That indifferent laziness, just not caring. Like, if you, you, know, you, you have a job, you just don't care if you do a good job or not. Just whatever's the easiest thing, you, know, you want to just get it done, check it off. It doesn't matter if you produce quality work or non-quality work. You don't care. It doesn't matter. That doesn't honor God. 
It's trying to do the minimum and viewing work as a necessary evil on your path to a life of leisure. That's what we're talking about, okay? Slacking off the job, just being lazy. Laziness, look at the book of Proverbs, laziness is a sin. Now, make sure you understand, I'm not talking about rest. To not rest is a sin. But when it's time to work, to just be lazy is a sin. And so just as much as I will come against idolaters and workaholism, when you go to work or you go to school tomorrow or wherever you go, if you are just straight up lazy in it, you don't work hard, you don't produce quality work, I'm not talking about perfection, but a good, honest effort before God, if you're just trying to do the minimum you can to possibly get by, you need to repent just as much as the idolater workaholic. And so often man's approach, we either overvalue work and make it an idol, or we undervalue work and are lazy. But God's approach to work then, God's definition of work has nothing to do with how you value the work. It has to do with how you value the one who created work and gave it to you. Because ultimately... You are working for the Lord Jesus, which renders your work an act of worship. And so when we work and how we work, it says something about the God that we claim to worship. And so now let me show this to you out of Ephesians. So Ephesians chapter 6, if you're in First Timothy, just turn to the left, just a couple of books. <clears throat> You'll find Ephesians Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. <clears throat> and then you have 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and you have 1st Timothy. So just to the left a little bit. Chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 6. Look at verse 5. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is <clears throat> excuse me, a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening. Knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. So there's a lot of specific imperatives here, but I want you to look at verse 7 again and, and circle it or underline or, or highlight it in your Bible. Look at verse 7 again. <clears throat> Rendering service with a goodwill as to the Lord and not to man. As to the Lord. This is why work is worship, because Jesus is your ultimate boss. He's your boss with a capital B. You are working 
for him and not man. And when you get that, no matter what you do and no matter who you work for on earth, when you get that your ultimate boss is Jesus, it will change everything about your job. How you do your job, how you view your job, and the motivation for your job. And it will crush this draw towards idolatry because Jesus is Lord. And it will crush this draw towards laziness because you're working for the Lord Christ. Look at verse 5 again. Bond servants. I'm just going to show you how it crushes both of these things. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service. And so this idea of eye service here, this is like when the boss is looking, so maybe ninth grade gym, you're doing push-ups, coaches, and then they look away, so you just kind of hold for a minute, then they look back and you start going to it, right? That's eye service. That's eye service. When someone's looking, you're all over it. But then when it's not, man, your job just became an episode of The Office. So you got Michael over here doing who knows what. Doesn't even make any sense at all. Jim's over here putting Dwight's stapler in jello. And Dwight, truly, the Lord only knows what Dwight's doing. But seriously, when, you're, when your boss is not around, is, is that you? Do you work when they're watching and not when they're not? What if Jesus was your boss? Would that change the way you do your work? The reality is he is your boss. And the way you work directly corresponds with the heart that you have for him because it's him that you are serving. And so no more do we have uh, excuse to convince ourselves that what we're doing doesn't matter and so we can goof off, we can waste time, we can do lousy work, we can just do as little as possible, just enough so that we don't get fired. We can't live like that anymore because Jesus is our boss. We're serving Him. And so, Christian, every time you make a delivery, you turn in a project, you hand in an expense report, You make a decision in a board meeting, you push to get a sale, you close a deal, you take care of a patient, you mop the floor, you grade an exam. You're making a statement about who Jesus is. That's why in 1 Timothy chapter 6, it says, Let all those who are under yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching, that's the gospel, may not be reviled. And so what kind of statement does your work ethic make? In the second century, there was a pretty amazing Christian leader named Athenagoras. And he wrote a letter to the Roman emperor at the time, Marcus Aurelius, trying to get the emperor to uh, tolerate Christianity. And not persecute it so much. And so he wrote this letter to him. And he actually, it was a book. And he actually went and presented it. And read a portion of it to him in person. And so he began by praising Marcus Aurelius. And then he gets into talking about certain avenues. Of trying to get him to be more tolerant towards Christians. 
And among many other things that he writes, the thing he kind of camped out on for a while was, hey, emperor, you desire good citizens, right? Well, what makes a good citizen? Not lying and not stealing and, and not killing people. Well, as Christians, we're not even to be unrighteously angry at people. And so he just kind of plays that game and lays all that out. It's like, so you should want to have Christians as citizens. You should not be trying to get rid of them. You should be trying to get more of them because we make the best citizens. Similarly, this should be our approach in our places of employment. So that an employer never has to worry, oh, I hired a Christian. That means I do not have to worry about how hard they're going to work. I do not have to worry that they're going to slack off a little bit or or take, you know, staplers and tons of paper and books and stuff home. That's called stealing. I don't have to worry that they're going to do shady deals. That's what we want to live. We want to, as Titus says, we want to adorn our work with the gospel. We don't want Christ and His teaching, the name of God and the teaching to be reviled. And so when you get that Jesus is your boss and that you're ultimately working for Him, it will crush this draw towards laziness and it will crush this draw towards idolatry. So we just looked at the, eye of, the, the way of eye service, that's the laziness. Now let's look at idolatry. And that's the next part, people pleasers. People pleasers. This is one of the biggest forms of of idolatry as I look across the working world today. Or that I saw, like, if you're a guest here, I haven't always done this. I had six years where I worked. Not that I don't work now, but that I... (laughs) I mean, I got my one day a week, right? You know... But this is something that you just saw so prevalent. People seeking to be viewed by people, whether it's their boss, their employees, co-workers, whoever, in a certain light. That's what they lived for. They wanted to please them. They wanted to be seen in a certain light. And listen, there's nothing wrong with wanting to do a good job for, for a boss and, and even be recognized properly and rewarded appropriately. There's nothing wrong with that. That's fine. The point, though, is when being recognized and known becomes your driving ambition. That that is what you're after. That you fear and revere the opinion of man far more than you fear and revere the opinion of God. That's a problem. That's people-pleasing. But when you recognize that Jesus is your boss, and that ultimately you answer to Him... That's weighty on the one hand, but it's freeing on the other hand. Because it frees you from basing your success on the constantly changing sands of people's opinions, which are largely based only on, what have you done for me lately? And so when Jesus is your boss and you're driving ambition, it sets you free from seasickness caused by the ups and downs of your job. Highs when it's awesome and going well and depression when it's not. Or when you can't find work. Because your hope isn't set in that. It doesn't mean that you're not jostled by it. 
but your hope's not there. So it's not taken. Your purpose and your meaning in life isn't set in that thing. Your satisfaction and fulfillment in life aren't set in those things. They are set in Christ, the great and glorious creator of the universe, maker of heaven and earth, high and exalted, sovereign over all things, and yet the one who came to stand as your substitute and live a life in your place that you haven't lived, a perfect sinless life, and then lay down that perfect sinless life in your place as a substitute. To pay your sin debt. And then rise again. Defeating sin and death. Breaking their power. And giving you the gift you could never earn. Forgiveness of sin. And eternal life. And not just like in a begrudging. You know. Way. But in a. Like Christ has done that willfully and joyfully. And the Father now looks at you as righteous and perfect, not because of what you did, but because of what Jesus did. And he's adopted you into his family and he delights in you. Zephaniah, he sings over you. It's in that, in, it's in Christ that your hope is set. He alone can provide rest for your soul and peace and satisfaction. I'm a, Reminded of Augustine's famous quote, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless till they rest in you. You can try and fill your life with a million God replacements and you will continually be let down and continually empty. But in Christ, you will be continually full. Trust Him. If you have not, trust Him. Receive Him and live for Him. And, and as you think about the gospel and its implications in this, just think about this. It's a gift, right? The gospel is a gift. You can't work to earn it. You can't get it. You can't, you know, it's just a gift. You can't achieve it. And so this just hammers home the point again about this lack of satisfaction that you can't find in your jobs. Traeger and Gilbert, they wrote a book. I put it in uh, your resources. And they wrote this. Our jobs can never give us what we truly want. Only Jesus can. By his life, death, and resurrection, he has already achieved for us the highest joy the highest meaning, the highest significance, and the highest prize. When we believe our jobs can provide this for us, we forget the gospel and believe a lie. But when Jesus is your boss, you're set free from being defined by your job because you've already been defined by Christ. And you've anchored your soul to that immovable object. Friends, knowing that you work for King Jesus and not for other people sets you free. And it gives purpose and it gives meaning and it gives dignity to every job, regardless of what you do, because who you work for is way more important than what you do. And so for those of you who think that your job is meaningless, who think, you know, what's it going to matter in the grand scheme of things, those of you who've never been applauded, never thanked, looked down upon by much of the world, much of the culture, listen to me, you are serving the Lord Christ. 
not people. And so just the nature of that inherently gives dignity and meaning and purpose to your job, regardless of what it is. Because you're working for a boss with a capital B. You're serving Him. He puts you there. For whatever season of time that may be. For a reason. And when you get that and you work that way, it revolutionizes how you work and how you view your work. It's not meaningless. It's for Jesus. He's your boss. But not only is Jesus your ultimate boss, but as your boss, he wrote your ultimate job description. Anytime you get hired to a new job, you've got a new job description. Or maybe even when you're interviewing, they float that out there to you. When you work for Jesus, he gives you a job description that supersedes all other job descriptions handed to you. His job description can be found in Matthew chapter 22, verse 36. I'll read it to you. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he, being Jesus, said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's your ultimate job description, no matter where you work. You're to love God, and you're to love others. That trumps everything. No longer is it just about the bottom line. No longer is, are people a means to gain, a means to upward mobility. And when you work for Jesus, then no matter what you do, you are living and working in a way that is decidedly different from the rest of the world. It's not just about the bottom line. It's not just, you don't view people as, as means to an end. I'm not saying that money's unimportant. I'm not saying that climbing the corporate ladder is bad. It's just that ultimately God puts you in that job to love Him and love others. And to learn, as He sanctifies you, to love Him more and love others more. That's your main goal. That's your overriding job description handed down to you from your boss with a capital B. And so just practically, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1 Speaking like to, to employees. So if you are an employee, listen well. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters, that is boss, lowercase b, as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. And so you are, the key word there is regard. Regard your boss as honorable. Right? The key there is regard because they may not be honorable. They may not be worthy of honor, but this is how we are to regard them. Now somebody's like, Joe, I'm smarter than my boss. He's a fool. Maybe he is. Maybe he's not. But either way, just as in the military, you still need to salute the uniform. 
And in the meantime, you stay patient. And you work hard for the Lord. You be obedient to Christ. You do your job. You trust Him. And pray for your boss. And do you pray for your boss? Do you know we're commanded to? We said it a couple weeks ago. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. But then also, uh, still here in 1 Timothy chapter 6, thinking about employees, verse 2 gives us a little bit more practical instruction. Those who have believing masters, so you've got a boss who is a Christian, okay? Those who have believing bosses must not be disrespectful on the ground that they're brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. What this is talking about is don't take advantage of having a boss who is a Christian because you know he will be more forgiving. So you think you can get by with a lesser performance you can get by with being a little bit late you know leaving a little bit early slacking off just a little bit because they're going to be more lenient they're going to be more forgiving you're taking advantage of them Mm, this says no don't do that serve them all the more so that's employees but what about employers somebody's like i'm an employer in here all right well Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 6. Listen to verse 9. Masters, do the same to them, all these things that we've talked about, and stop your threatening. So you don't have a harsh tone. Knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. And so here's the deal, employers. Every boss who is a Christian has a boss named Jesus. All right? So if Jesus is your boss, he's an authority over you, then you need to treat others who are in authority under you like he treats you. And so this means you're going to be concerned about them more as a person than a profit producer. Now, they don't need to turn a profit. But your concern is about far more than that. You'll be concerned about their illnesses. You'll be concerned about their spouses. You'll be concerned about their children. You'll be concerned about their education. You'll be concerned about their salary and that they're paid properly. And yeah, this will mean it's a little more involved, a little more complicated, but you're not serving the company alone. We serve Christ. And we take everything. All that He's called us to applies all the time. There's not separate rules for this and separate rules for that. We serve Christ. And so sometimes you don't make the most inexpensive decision for the company. Sometimes you make the most loving decision for your employees. I mean, if you truly realize that you must answer to God someday for the way you conduct yourself with your employees, that will change the way you talk to them, the way you treat them, the way you approach them, the way you view them. They're people, not just 
replaceable parts of your machine of a company. You deal with them like your boss deals with you. Graciously, generously, kindly. And so realize Jesus is your boss. Realize Jesus wrote your job description. And realize this Jesus is going to do your performance review. Now in one sense we have a perfect review because it's Christ's. Right? The way God views us is not based upon our performance for Him, but Christ's performance for us in our place as our substitute. So we've got a perfect review. His righteousness has been given to us. Our sins have been taken away from us. We have a perfect record before God based not on anything we've done, but solely on what Christ has done. So in that sense, we have a perfect performance review. But that does not mean that we just do nothing and sit around twiddling our thumbs until Jesus comes again. No, it should stir us up to live a life of gratitude and glad submission to God because the God of the universe has smiled on us and he sent Christ for us, knowing full well all of our rebellion. And so that should stir us up to walk in every arena of our life, a walk that is Ephesians 4 in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And not only that, but knowing that Jesus writes your performance review as your ultimate boss, that's also freeing. It's not all about the Benjamins. Puff Daddy and Biggie Smalls say it is. Many of you have no clue what I'm talking about. But it's not about that. Success in God's eyes is not defined by that. It's not defined by dollars and cents. It's not defined by promotions. It's not defined by positions. It's defined by obedience and faithfulness. Giving your all to whatever he's put before you. And so standing clean before God and knowing that you gave it your all. Regardless of what the world may think, if you served God faithfully, that's success, and that's freeing. God doesn't grade the way the world grades. And grade's not even the right way. He looks at us with grace. But a life that's pleasing to Him is a life of faithfulness. It's not measured on the wind. It's measured on, were you faithful? Did you do it God's way? And did you work hard? And so, folks, when you go to work tomorrow, remember Jesus is your boss. Capital B, ultimate. And remember that he wrote your job description. And remember that he writes your, he will perform your performance review. And one more short one, know that Jesus is for you. Wherever you're at in your job, whatever's going on, things are going well or man. It is a dumpster fire that's riding on top of a train wreck. Whether you're employed, whether you're unemployed, whether you've got to quit a horrible, toxic situation, or things are just really, really good. Whether you've been a sinful idolater, or you've been a sinful, indifferent, lazy person. Jesus is still for you.
He's still working for His glory and your good. The cross still stands as a reminder of that, as testimony to it. And so let me plead with you for a minute. Whatever is going on in your work right now or even outside of work, let go of the lie that God is against you. Because it's simply not true. It's not true. Christ wouldn't have gone to the cross if He was ever against you. He's for you. That's what the cross, that's what the empty tomb reminds us over and over and over and over again. You say, ah, you don't understand what I've done. That's the whole point. God delights in showing mercy to those who don't deserve it. That's the whole point of the Bible. We don't deserve it. Christ gives it. In His love and in His grace. And it's the one that accomplished that good news for you that you serve in the workplace. He's your boss. He wrote your job description. He does your performance review. And he's for you there. And so verse 7 again. Render service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Recalibrate your mindset, friends. That work is worship. Let's pray. Father, help us to see that life is worship. We were created by you for your glory. For your praise. We're created to worship you. And so we don't have spheres of life. We don't have areas of our lives that are God-free zones. Every area of our life is yours. And so, Father, help us to hit reset and recalibrate our hearts and our minds as it relates to our work and to our jobs. So we might see that we're serving you and not man. And so we might focus our efforts in light of that. That you are our boss. And we have a job description that supersedes our job description. And that we're at our place of employment. For a purpose that involves just the work itself. Doing it unto you. Whether we eat or whether we drink or whatever we do. We do all to the glory of God. Help us God to remember these things. We're so prone to forget. And help us Father to truly be set free by these things. How you define success. And how you are our ultimate boss. And how you are our hope. And so it's not vacillating on just positive outcomes of life. It's steadfast in an anchor that holds in any smooth waters or any stormy waters. We need help this way. And so we asked for it.
from one who gives plenteously and graciously and generously because you are good and kind and merciful. In Christ's name, amen.